0: Hey, guys, I'm your host, Smitha Kuntari. Hello, everybody. I have Alicia Brown with me. She's a victim, survivor, leader, and a visionary. She actually gave me her introduction as leader or a visionary. I would say she is both of it. At times, we all need to be inspired. Alicia Brown, the Jai guru, is the best-selling author, publisher, and transformational speaker who encourages audience by igniting the fire within and helping them to take the center stage. Welcome to the show. And I'm really honored to have you here. Thank you for being here and sharing your story.
1: No, Smitha, thank you. Because for me, it's an honor to be here to share my story, especially in pandemic times, because, you know, abuse is always prevalent, but like right now with the pressures, the stresses, the confinement, it's even worse. Um, So this is, what you're doing to me is very important to the people that need these stories and need some type of encouragement and resources of how to get out of that situation while protecting themselves and their family.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So please go ahead and explain your story, what your story is. And today, the way I know you is you're a leader, you're a visionary, absolutely, and you are like leading a lot of conferences or like going to the summits or like you are the person on the center of the stage. So that's how I know you. But when you talk about, when you give that introduction saying like you are a victim and you are a survivor, a lot of people will not be able to connect to you looking in the center of the stage saying like, oh, she is very well built. So yeah, Yeah. she's far off from us. But no, you started your life from the stage where you are like at the rock bottoms and you started building up yourself. So please. Explain us how it all started and how you got your strength and energy to be here
1: today. Oh wow. <laughs> wow. I mean I could take an hour doing that, but I won't. Oh, you can take a couple um, of hours, don't worry about that. <laughs> okay, well then in that case, everybody sit relax, you know? Yes. <laughs> no. Um it's just sometimes I just look and it's so funny to me. It's so ironic because, you know, people see this bubbly person. Of course, the Joy Guru uh, label doesn't help that. But, um, you know, I'm talkative. People that know me, I'm very energetic. I'm very talkative. She'll never shut up. And they never would realize that the child going through abuse was the exact opposite. I wouldn't say anything because my abuser was my father. So that means from birth, I had someone abusing me. It was... Uh, primarily verbal and emotional abuse. But when a child, especially in the formative years, is abused, whatever the abuser says to you is what you believe. I mean, they're your parents, why else wouldn't you believe? Those are the first words you hear, the first actions you hear, you think it's normal. So if you're told that you are dumb, you are lazy, you are stupid, you believe it. You believe you're worthless. You don't believe you're anything. You don't understand how this person who has half your DNA hates you. You don't understand why they hate you. And then as a child that's abused you know, you have no safe place. So I'm abused in my home. I'm the short fat kid at school. So I'm ridiculed there. You know, we were brought up in a very religious family. So I, you know, even when you're going to your place of worship, you know, a lot of times our houses of worship, there's segregation or there's popularity contests. So I'm not the popular one. My family is not the popular one. And the whole time as an abused child, you have to pretend everything is perfect because we're taught. Whatever happens in your house stays in this house. So you don't tell people what's going on. You keep it private. So you take a child that fears for their life at times, who often doesn't see a way out of this. So they want to kill themselves. You know, I have memories where I remember having a knife under my pillow because my father was very quick tempered and angry. So I'm thinking, you know, one night he may come in your room in a rage. And what would you do? You know, how would you defend yourself? So I have a butcher knife under my pillow thinking, well, you know, if he comes too soon, you can slash your wrist and maybe the blood will make him go away. No child should be thinking these things. And then of course, and I remember this cause I said we were raised in a spiritual home. I remember praying to God and begging, don't have the courage to kill myself. Can you just give it to me? It'd be a mercy killing, you know? I know you're a God that doesn't want to see people in pain. So if you just give me enough courage and strength to end my life, I had thought about well maybe pills, no, what if this happens and he'll be angry that he has to take you to the hospital, blah, 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 blah. I thought of all ways. We didn't have a weapon in our house. So I couldn't load a gun and kill myself. I didn't have access to go get a gun. So I'm thinking, okay, well, you, you, you know, you don't want to drink poison. You don't want to take a bunch of pills. You don't even know what pills to take. Well, the only thing you can do is slit your wrists. And the more I thought about it, the more I had the knife, I just couldn't do it. I was just too scared. And then I would blame myself. It was this cycle of blaming myself. How can you be so weak that you can't even kill yourself? You know, how can you be so weak that the thing that's going to get you out of this, you can't even do it. So I'm praying to God, give me the courage to end my life because there's no way out of this. There's just no way to get out of this. He's not going to change. This is going to be my life forever. I'm not strong enough to keep taking this. I got to go. There's no safe place anywhere. So I did all of that. God wouldn't let me. But I'll tell you the one thing, big thing that saved my life, because this is the message. If they hear nothing else from this broadcast, I want them to know. I want the world to know this. No one really wants to kill themselves. They don't. They just don't see another solution or way out. So it's not a thing about being weak. It's not a thing about just giving up is that they need help and they don't see any other help, any other way out of this. You have to think about if you were in a dangerous situation, let's say you're driving your car and it's about to go over the bridge. Wouldn't you do everything to save yourself? Wouldn't you do everything in your power to prevent yourself from falling over? Well, that's what the person contemplating suicide is thinking, I am in danger. I can't defend against this. I don't see a way out. I have to end this dangerous situation. So they look for ways to kill themselves because all the cries for help, there is no help. So when I reached that end, my mother, a former uh, school educator, always made sure I was in the library. Every reading list, every summer program, I was in the library. And I distinctly remember (laughs) I think I was five because I taught myself to read it four. I think it was about five or six. And you see this short little girl with the stack of books taller than her. You know, I'm waddling to the desk because the books are so heavy. I can't see over them. And I put them on the counter with my card. My mother was there with me that day. And I'm checking out all these books. And the librarian, she's scanning them and she's looking at them. She's looking up at my mother. She's looking at me. She's looking at them. She's like, I mean, I had Jackie Collins, Stephen King, Babysitter's Club, I had all these different things. And she goes, she doesn't really know what she's reading, does she? And my mother just smiled and said, yes, she does. In reading those different books, not only did I have forms of escape, I found the stories, I stumbled upon stories of survivors that were successful. Oprah Winfrey, Maya Angelou. I studied the stories of people like that that had gone through horrific abuse, but now were successful. So on the nights I was contemplating suicide after reading those stories, I said, you know, God, if there was some good that came out of their life, I don't know, maybe there's some good that can come out of mine. And I would tell him distinctly, I'm not promising you that I'm not gonna kill myself. I just won't do it tonight. And then it was night after night, story after story, and now I'm here today. So I say all that to say that there is hope, but we have to, those of us that survived, and no matter what condition you are in right now, you may feel like you are so jacked up. You are so broken. You, you, know, you might feel worthless or useless. You might feel like you're so far apart from everyone else in the world and being normal and being happy. But the point is you are alive. And if you are still breathing, there is still opportunity. There is still a chance for you to turn it around. There is still a chance for you to have joy and happiness. But when you cease existence, there are no more opportunities. There's no more chances. There's no more hope. So you have to sometimes just give yourself a pat on the back for winning because you're winning if you're breathing. And if you're breathing, you can navigate the story from here. You can't control all the time what happened to you, but you are in control of this point today and going forward. And you have to rejoice in even that little victory because that little victory is huge. Yep. Yep.
0: When you're mentioning about like, yes, you can do it or like you, you can navigate through your problems. Yes. A lot of people usually say that, I mean, you can hear that from any normal person also like hearing that, but right person who is in that situation what will actually help I mean these words will as I just mentioned like you can hear anywhere everybody okay. will sit besides that person and say like you can do this you have to do this and then yeah there is no other way you should not kill yourself yeah all these things from an outer perspective it, it yeah. is but the person actually in that stage what would be the one thing or like the biggest suggestion or like advice that you will provide to that kind of a person there yes in that situation
1: yes you know that the first book I wrote that that was why because I felt like someone that had been there needed to speak to that person that was on the ledge you needed to say something to help them not jump off And the only person that can do that is somebody that's been there. So one of the things that is very important that we hear all the time is mindset, is how you think. That's why I understand people say motivational speaker, but I don't claim, I don't aim to be your motivational speaker because that's a cheerleader thing. And like you said, if you're right there, I can hear those words from anybody, but I'm on the ledge. I don't need you to give me a little cheer, cheer, pom-pom. You can do it. No, I need you to give me something that transforms me and gets me off this ledge. So one of the things I had to shift was, and one of the things I had to understand, in my case, my abuser was dead. So number one, I said, you know, you're letting someone that's dead control your actions today. They're dead and at peace. You're alive and suffering. But what if your abuser isn't dead? What if your abuser, you know, you're going through is alive and well? Well, here's the other part I say. I had a friend who dealt to, due to the savages. Man, I don't even think there's words for how horrific her abuse was. And watching her over the years from head to toe, how it crippled, physically crippled her body and her mind and her emotions. Just watching her suffer so much and trying to have any sense of normalcy in her life. And the deal was, she would keep saying, don't they see what they've done to me? Don't they see how I'm struggling? Don't they see how they're the cause of why I can't get my life together and the struggles I had with my kids? And I looked at her and I, with full love and respect, I said, no, because that's not what abusers do if they if they felt that way, they wouldn't have abused you. They don't have the heart of compassion you have, so they can look at you in your struggles. They don't see it. They don't take blame for it. Why? Because an abuser, as terrible as this may sound, it's a reality. They stick and they move. So while you're sitting there thinking, they care, why would they do this to me? Don't they see? You know, I know there has to be a heart somewhere in there where they're gonna change. They're on their second, their third, their fifth, their 105th, their 205th victim. They don't care. They don't think of you. It's having the act is doing the act, I compare it to a drug addict. They need the fix in that moment. When they want that fix, They do anything to get it. And then they take it for whatever the relief, whatever pleasure they had, and it's over. And now they're only concerned about needing and how to get my next fix. That's how people do when they abuse you. They're not concerned about you or the effect, or you could be there crying, they don't care. And if you don't believe me, how many stories do we have, if this is not your personal story, of abuser that punches you in the face or beats you and says, I'm sorry, and I love you. And then turns right around, Beats you again says i'm sorry and I love you and do it over and over and over they don't care so since they don't care for you or about you or what they do to you, you have to be the one that cares for yourself. Don't allow don't give them that power don't give them the power of this scenario, we do we're loving creatures. Most people I know that have been abused, you are a loving creature. Even if your heart is hardened and you come off angry and bitter, you still want to be loved and you want to love. That's how we're created. But trying to think that person, I'm not saying you have to demonize them, but trying to think that person has the same heart and compassion and care you do, and you're staying around to hope you can fix them or transform them, you won't. Yep, You just won't. And sometimes- we can't save everybody. You have to save yourself. I give this analogy. If you're on the plane, they always tell you, let's say you're a mother and you have small kids, put your oxygen mask on. Well, that's kind of selfish. If I have my children, you know, I'm a mother, I would risk my life for my kids. Of course, I put the kids mask on first. I'll think of me last. No, because if you go first, who's going to put the mask on the kids? got to save yourself first so you're some use to those you say you love or what you say you're meant to do. Sometimes I can't save everybody. I got to save myself first. So that's what I would say. Some, uh, some thoughts, um, transform a mindset, transform your way of thinking as far as how that person that's hanging on by a thread, that person on the ledge, those are some things I would say you need to think about and how you can make that transition. And please don't think it happens overnight because it doesn't. It's an ongoing process. It doesn't. There are some times you think you are well, something triggers a thought, and you can go back to feeling like, what happened? I'm low again. I mean, I feel like I, I can't get my breath. It's a continuous cycle. There's no one fix all. There's no boom. Today I'm happy. I'm healed. I don't remember anything. It never happened. That 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 isn't what happened. But you also don't have to live in bondage and be broken and feel worthless all the time either that that's not healing yep yep
0: when you're actually mentioning about like yes moving forward with yourself or like you're yeah, loving yourself or right, taking care of yourself put yourself first yeah. what would be the first step that you suggest
1: Woo. wow um,
0: that is in a very dark place what yeah. would the first step you actually suggest
1: To me, I think you have to realize and admit that you're in a really dark place. And that sounds so simple, but it's not, you know, you'd be like, well, obviously they're depressed. They're crying all the time. You know, they're, they're having traumatized moments from what happened and the memories. Of course they know they're in a dark place. No, no. It's something about the acknowledgement and owning it until you own it. You can't get help. You can't get out. I remember one person, um, she said her mother used to tell her, you know, if you keep, you're like, I, I'm just overwhelmed. And it's like, I just keep going deeper and deeper. It's like, I'm digging the hole. I'm stuck in a hole. And her mother told her, well, stop digging the hole. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, that that's really profound. Because sometimes, you know, I'm just stuck. And did it did it will at least be the person that stops digging the hole to make sure you're just stuck and you're further down in the ground. Stop digging. So, you know, my thing is I always say, if you're bleeding, we need to first stop the bleeding. We can have all these analytical. Well, you know, I think you're suffering from PTSD. You know, I think you're suffering from this. Or maybe you're suffering from the you know what? If they're gushing blood, I don't need you to diagnose the I need you to stop the bleeding now. Okay. The little cute labels, and you may have this, and this might be your trauma. That is so adorable. I am bleeding. Do you mind performing triage? And then we could talk about what it is. And it's, it's very comical. But then if you think about it from the abuse perspective, oh, we do that all the time. We self-diagnose ourselves. We read all the books. We watch so-and-so program about fix this, fix that. And then, you know, your girlfriend down the street, she said, I might have that. Well, girl, what was the symptoms? Well, you know, I do that too. Um, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. You can't breathe. Can we get the oxygen first? Then we can talk about what you might have, what you might not. Um, personally, if you want to diagnose something, please see a professional. That's what they do. And let me say this, because therapy as a child, of course, growing up the way I grew up and a lot of time in African-American families, I told you, what happens here stays here. We, we don't talk about it to other people, okay? Um. So my thing is therapy is not really promoted. I happen to have a mother who believes in therapy. Of course, uh, with her mental illness, that's something she had to do, and it helped her. But I will say that when my father died, you know, my my sister and I are eight years apart. My father died when I was seventeen, so at that time, my sister was nine years old. My mother went and sought therapy for her, and I was always the strong one. I was the one that picked out my father's burial clothes because I saw how much my mother was grieving. I I just wanted to make it easier for her. I didn't, whatever I could do to help in this situation, I wanted to help. And I didn't realize until probably over a decade or more later, um, I hired a life coach. I didn't realize that going back to that moment, I needed help too. You know, I had lived this whole facade of having to be the strong one I was the oldest child, you know, of course, I didn't have mental illness. My mom had mental illness, and I just you know had to with working with therapy, had to realize, you know you were always older than your years, your parents were older, of course, your grandparents were older, but you were always the adult, you were always the one to take care of everything, try to make everybody else's life easier. Who took care of you Yep. Yeah. who 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 took care of you? You wore that badge of honor. I've always going the extra mile, making sure everybody's okay. Who made sure you were okay? And it was always having that beside of, I'm good, I'm happy, I'm good, I'm happy, I'm good. Have a on on smile, we're going here, let's look like this, let's look like this, let's look normal, let's do what everybody says is normal. Nobody ever asked me if I was okay. And I found myself as an adult, you know, you go on jobs, you're serving in this capacity, you're on this board. No one asks you if you're okay. If you're smiling, they think you're okay. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves and then we need to take some form of therapy, however we take it. So, you know, there's great, um, associations, NAMI, um, they deal with mental health. And I want to say this because I grew up with the family. Um, I told you in my immediate family, my mother has mental illness challenges on that side of my, you know, my grandparents things, several generations deal with mental illness. I want people to get out of the, the terrible stigma that mental illness is a negative thing, something you're, you're sick, you're off, you're crazy. We need to focus on mental wellness because if the pandemic doesn't teach you anything at different times in our lives, you don't have to go through trauma. You don't have to have been abused, but at different times in our lives, life's pressure alone, there are times where your mental wellness is off. And just like there's physicals, just like there's uh, dental exams, your vision exams, you need to check for your mental wellness. I'm not in a good place and I need help some form of way. Maybe there's techniques. Everything isn't going straight to medicine, but if you need medicine, it's better for you to get it as early as you can versus just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding out because you can get to a point where you've caused so much damage to your body that there's certain things they just can't heal. And if you don't believe abuse and trauma can cause mental illness and physical damage to your body, oh, it can. That's why abusers are so effective because they know how to get to your mind and your emotions and have you warring against yourself. And the longer you deal with that, the worse off it's going to be not just in your mind, but your whole physical body. I have been a chronic or I was a chronic pain sufferer for at least over a decade. And there's a thing called ACEs. And I encourage the listeners to study that. They are showing if you were not abused, if you just live in a house with someone that has depression or one of your parents or caretakers um, was an alcoholic or they were abused, there are adverse childhood experiences as a result. You can have certain physical illnesses due to that. So if that's the case, then you know, if you grew up abused, or if later in life as an adult, you were abused or in an abusive environment, what type of illnesses and things that the doctors may not even be relating to what you went through, could you have, and you're taking this as normal? No, it is your body and your mind and your spirit crying out, we need help. We need you to address this. We need you to get help for these issues. That's why all of this other stuff is going on that doctors will prescribe something or attribute it to your DNA or something else. It may not be, or it just may be worsened because of your trauma. And until you fix that emotional illness, that mental illness, as well as the physical abuse that you may or may not have suffered, the elements don't get better either. So now you're being re-victimized twice because you were abused and victimized by your abuser. But now my body over the years is still suffering, still going through. And tell me how you live your best life when you're sitting up here hurting in pain, not to mention mental anguish, because you're still replaying everything that happened, or you may still be in the abuse. So everything that is happening, and that isn't good for you, but it's not good for anyone around you that you're taking care of either. So you have to get help you can't listen to other people's words well why don't you just shake that off you know so and so went through something worse all that happened to you was well no because what seems like all that happened to you and someone else's story is worse I tell people your story was that bad for you your body your mind what trauma it caused you is just as bad for you as maybe that horrific story you're hearing over there was for them don't compare different people's abuse absolutely don't do that. Don't do that. Right. Yours was traumatic to you. So own that and own the fact you need help. Don't feel shame for needing help and seek it as soon as possible. And you don't have to tell everybody. You don't. It can be private. Do what you need to do, but get help. Because the, to me, the most horrible thing is to need help and not get it and it was accessible to you, but you didn't get it. And you suffer in silence and you suffer so long When help was available, there's no shame in needing help. We all, you weren't born by yourself. There was doctors or a midwife or somebody that helped the person carrying you for you to be born. So if we're not born by ourselves, you're not going to die by yourself. Somebody's got to bury you. Someone has to relocate the body. It may sound morbid. Why do you think throughout life you're supposed to do everything yourself? You can't heal by yourself either. So seek help. Don't be ashamed of that. That's your obligation is to seek help so you can move on. It doesn't matter about the abuser. It's for you to be able to move on and know that you deserve to move on. You deserve to be well. You deserve to be happy. And it is possible. Don't believe it's too late or I'll never be normal. What happened to me is just too bad. I'm just going to suffer for the rest of my life. Because if that's what you believe, that's exactly what's going to happen.
0: If I may request, would you be able to uh, explain a couple of scenarios of how you have been abused? The reason that I wanted to ask that question is how you actually came out of that situation? What helped you or like how you put up your mindset too? So if you can explain a couple of scenarios, the depth of your abuse and how you worked to come out of it.
1: Yes, you know. I think one of the saddest things I realized probably in my thirties was the fact that I always, for a long time, I didn't want to share my story of abuse because when I was hearing people talk about abuse, I'm like, well, that didn't happen to me. So what's, you know, I started questioning my abuse, not that I had this experience, but well, it doesn't seem like it was that bad because, you know, this one over here was sexually abused. This one over here was beaten to a pulp. That isn't my story. And then I had to go back and go, okay, let, let's just go back. You were emotionally and mentally abused, okay? Obviously, it was bad enough where you're contemplating suicide, and not once, but the majority of your life. And if something wasn't that bad, what? how is it normal for a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, all the way up to probably 17 or 18? It's not normal. Someone that age would want to die and want to kill themselves. And the only time that was true is when my abuser was in existence because he died at 17. So obviously, you know, people say, well, words can't hurt you. So a lot of time we normalize, well, you know, back in the day, um, (laughs) It was normal. People said that they didn't mean they were gonna kill you, or you know, people got a little bit too angry, and you know, they came at you, they charged at you, but you know, they wouldn't have really killed you ever. Children don't know that. Yep. And the truth is, and I'll, I'll bring some humor because I always bring humor to things. I like to watch old stories, so I'm an avid to this day. I watch the old Twilight Zones. I watch the old half Alfred Hitchcocks. Um, and pretty, for the most part, it's okay. But sometimes it's like, it, it plays with my mind. Um, you always saw those stories where the husband or wife got angry or the person got angry and they start fussing and you hit someone or you went to choke them and they fell and hit their head. And it's like, oh my God, they're dead. I didn't mean that. So that taught me and putting it together in the heat of anger, anything can happen, but also it's the fear of that person. People have heart attacks from the fear that you're going to kill them and harm them. And then the person's left to explain, well, I wasn't really, you don't know what you really will do in a rage, in a fit of anger. So for me, it started, you know, early on with being emotionally and verbally abused, which of course left me with no self-esteem. Believe me, I'm worthless. Believe in what my abusers say. You're fat, you're lazy, you're dumb, you're stupid. So that's how I live my life below. I wasn't a smart person. And then I look back and go, what are you talking about? I mean, I was a sickly child. So it's like to high school, I missed probably 50 or 60% of the school year and was still able to come with honor roll grades or whatever. It's like you were highly intelligent. And then my mother who always thought she was stupid, also grew up in an abusive environment from her father. She graduated number seven in her high school class. So how are these two women who are collegiate educated, have high scores, how do you think you're stupid? You know, and then I look at things I do in the business. I'm like, it's sheer genius of what you're producing for clients. How did you ever, your creative mind, what you were doing, teaching yourself to read it for, why did you ever think you were stupid? You know why? Because that's what my abuser said. And we believe we are a product of our environment, good or bad. So we believe what we're told. When he charged at me, when he had those angry outbursts, when he refused to show any amount of compassion or love, every experience were angry. I remember thinking in my twenties, I don't have one positive thing I remember from childhood, from him. You know, normally you have something like, oh yeah, I remember as a family when we did, you know, I remember when he said, I don't have one time ever where I remember him saying, I love you, or him showing love. Matter of fact, the only kind thing I have is remembering, and it's not really kind. I remember my mom, I wanted a cat. I'm still a cat lover to this day. I think I was 13, almost 14. And my mom said, you know, you should get that for her. Because you don't show her you love her in any other way. You should get that for her. And I remember she said that and we went to the SPCA and got my first cat. So you mean my first cat was a guilt gift? Someone had to remind you of how horrible you are to your child and the fact you don't show them love and that's why you bought them something they wanted? What a horrible memory. So the I say that to say the effects of that emotional and mental and then the fear of being attacked and the anger was so traumatic. You didn't have to lay a hand on me. You didn't have to sexually abuse me. And I'm not saying those type of stories are less of less importance, but I'm saying my story of abuse was that traumatic to me. And to be honest, you asked me how I got out of it. I'm gonna say the grace of God, because after growing up like that, my abuser died at 17, You know. One would think if you read the story of my life, if this was a movie, oh my God, she's free now. You know, he's gone. The abuse is over. No, because the one that's been abused has to now pick up the pieces. And I tell people, you know, it's like someone had their hand on your throat and they let go. You still are engaged. You don't know you're free because you've had that hand on your throat for 17 years. You don't know how, what free looks like. You're in that fight or flight syndrome that you don't know how to relax. And and you know, whatever normal is, you don't know what that means. So what do I do? I do what a lot of us do. You do what's expected. That's what you've been doing. So it's expected I go to college, I went to college. You get the degree. Your parents tell you, you need to get a good job. So you get a, a good job. You're checking the dots of what everybody else expects you, uh, of you. And I remember in my mid thirties, I just sat there and I was sitting at the desk one day and I said, you know, I'm too anointed. God's anointing is not meant for me to sit behind this desk. And it was the first time I was in my mid 30. It was the first time that I just thought about what I wanted. I had always done what everybody else expected of me. I was performing that way at work. You know, if that's not enough pressure, I never asked what I wanted. Even when people would ask me growing up, what you want to do? I wanted to do what everybody else expected me to do. I, Mom was a school teacher. I knew I didn't want to do that. But it's like, well, what do you do? I don't know. And you're listening to this one. I had no sense of purpose and what I wanted to do because I had lived my whole life trying to survive and I didn't know how to breathe. I just knew how to fight. And you know, in the job, you're fighting for what you think you deserve, especially being a double minority, you're still fighting, you know, you're sitting here as one of the only or one of the few and trying to justify why you should have this and trying to advance and not getting that. You're still in fight mode. Yep. And I finally just had a moment where it was my aha moment where I start thinking about what does Alicia want to do? What makes you happy? What what makes you, you know, just this is what I was born for. And while I finally figured it out, like, I I, you know, what? I can't do that. Da-da-da-da-da. So I said, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do my job at the same time. It was working well until my body starts shutting down. Chronic pain start becoming more. And I had to make a choice. Look, you're going to either give up this job for this dream thing that you say you're born to do, or you're going to sit here on the job. You you can't continue to do both. You're burning the fire on both ends, your body, the vibrant one you are. I used to walk around the office making up excuses to do work. I couldn't sit there and just the work is done and do what everybody else was doing on Facebook or on the phone. No, I have to do something. I'm reorganizing things. I was quick to be walking all over the building because you know, I'm just energized. I found myself, I can't even walk. I'm barely struggling to walk from my car to my office which was a short distance. And I'm gonna say this because it's important to tell you just how far abuse can go. And if anyone is in this situation, please get help. My body, I was having problems walking. I remember holding on to my mom's arm, going to the orthopedic specialist. I can only take three steps at a time and pause. Three steps at a time and pause. My mother is 32 years older than me. Between the two of us, you're looking at this 30-something-year-old woman and her 60-year-old-something mother. If someone should be walking like that, it should be her, not me, not her daughter. But it's me. And, And mind you, at that time, I had lost over 200 pounds. So what is wrong with you where you can't walk? I didn't put all these things together. I didn't know about ACEs. I didn't know about that. So they put me on narcotics. Fortunately, I didn't have to take it every day, but at the heat and season, I was taking it more than what usually. I would have to, okay, eat your breakfast. I would drive to the office. I had to cut the doses in half. I had to have enough in my system just to walk into my job because the pain was so unbearable and was affecting my ability to walk. I would have loads of coffee all day because I have to stay awake when this medicine, even half of it is making me go to sleep. Sometimes I was not off at my desk. And then I had to time it just right because I had to have at least enough of it still in my system, but not enough of it where it would impair my driving. Just enough for me to get home. So the residual had to wear off pretty much all of it, but just enough for me to be able to get home and walk up three small steps so I could collapse in my recliner and eat something and take my medicine because the pain was that bad from head to toe. And I said, something has to give. So that's when I started seeking more help, professionally, um, dealing with some issues that I thought I'm fine, I'm whole, whatever. We're talking about, you know, by that time, probably 15 plus years later, I'm not okay. And my body is telling me, you're not okay. I didn't realize it was the emotional damage from abuse that, you know, there was still some residual, there were still some issues not dealt with. I thought I was okay, but I wasn't okay because I'm still fight or flight, still doing what's expected. I'm not living, I'm not thriving. And I, I equate that to what I call the walking dead. There's a lot of us that are walking dead. You checked out a long time ago, you're doing what's expected. Now you're in the quote unquote normal life But you're not living according to your purpose. You're not happy. You haven't dealt with the issues. You don't even know who you are. You're just being what everybody else wants you to be. So you're the great mom for your kids, whatever you think that means. You're the great wife to your husband, whatever you think he thinks that means. You're the great worker, whatever your boss thinks that means. You're performing and being what everybody else wants from you. And what about you? And you're paying the price. You're suffering, you're dying inside every day, but you're just the walking dead. You're not thriving. You're not really happy, but you don't even know how to get there. You need help and you need to ask for it.
0: So when you are mentioning that you are not, uh, you don't know how to get there. And you also mentioned in your explanation right now, you have to figure out what you wanted to do with your life. How do you think one person can identify what their dream work kids are like, how can they identify their purpose of life?
1: It's cliche, two things. One thing they always say is, what would you do if money wasn't an issue? Like if there was anything, if you shut your eyes and there was anything you can do and you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do? That's one of them. Because anything that you're like, oh, if they, even if they didn't pay me, I would go do that. That, that's closer to what you need. Um, you need to do. And then two, look at that. Once you identify what that is, look at what you spend the most time doing. Because some of us are great encouragers. Some of us do things voluntarily. It may not be formal as you actually go someplace and volunteer. For some of you, it is. For some other people, it's like you may not have official organization you volunteer at. But if you look at your community with your friends, maybe with what you do at church, maybe what you do... Um, in your neighborhood, it's just something you do because it's something you love to do. You know, you feel compelled to do. One thing I know about abused people, a lot of times we're helpers because we know what the world is like when it's not ideal. And we're trying to be that person we needed that we didn't have. So some things you just naturally do and you love it and it's fun for you. A lot of times that's your key. It's either what you should be doing or it's like a clue to what you can do, what your purpose to do. And once you understand what that is, you need to pursue it. But what you need to do and what really stops so many of us from doing it is stop counseling it out before you give yourself a chance. Because then we go into, well, okay, how am I supposed to make money doing that? Like, how will I survive? How will I take care of my family? How will I do this? And we start counseling out because now doubt sets in. Well, you know, I've never done that before. No one in my family ever done that. That doesn't make sense. Well, what if I don't make it? And then we go, I'm just going to play it safe over here. And I remember, I laugh now because I went to my mom, I said, you know what? If anybody's gonna talk me out of 100% entrepreneurship, it's my mom. Cause she's gonna say, well, how are you gonna have insurance? How are you gonna pay your bills? Do you need, are you sure you wanna do something? I'm like, oh, I knew. When I said I was gonna do this, the one person that's gonna knock me back in reality if I'm crazy is my mama. And I went and talked to my mom. Mama's she's gonna say something and she, you know, she's gonna confirm it. She's gonna be right and I'm not gonna do this. And she goes, well, how will you get insurance? I said, well, mama, I can do da Well, okay, sound like you gotta figure it out. And I'm sitting here with my eyes open I'm like, God, my mother has flipped. If there was one person that was supposed to tell me I'm crazy and not to do this, it's my mother. And she's so calm and at peace. And I'm going, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't plan for that. So now I can't get out of this. I guess I gotta do it. And then it's like, I've never regretted it. Well, I say it's been a smooth course, heck no. Matter of fact, I I, I have this story publicly, so i tell it. Two months after I had left my job, I had resigned. My mother had a breast cancer scare and the director of my nonprofit simultaneously had emergency surgery where we thought we were going to lose her. It was also unexpected. Now, while I was happy that I no longer had to ask somebody permission to leave work and I could be there for both of them, less than two, three more months, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness and had to shut down my business for the better part of a year. And I look back on that and say, we're going into year six of my business. You are still here. You're working according to your purpose. Those issues you had, you don't have them to that degree, or some of them are gone all altogether. You survived. So just like the child abuse, just like other obstacles in your life, you survived. And then if you really look back at it, the stuff you survived, you're a freaking superhero. So the next time you want to doubt what you're able to do, look back over what you've been through and survived, you can do anything. You just need to claim that, you just need to know that, and then you need to silence other people's voices or other things in your life that's telling you otherwise. If you can't do nothing else but draw on the strength of what you have survived as an abuse survivor that is more than proof that you can do anything because no matter how weak you may feel if you feel right now that you're weak or you're barely hanging on by a thread the reality is it's a lot of people that went through far less than you did and they're not here anymore and they're not here because they took their own life so the fact that you're still here that is huge i don't care how other people minimize that for you the fact that you are still breathing and you made it today that is huge. That is superhero status. That, there's nothing larger than that. Yeah. So even if you feel you are hanging on by a thread, you need to just pump yourself up and you need to pat yourself on the back because the fact that you are here in this moment today puts you in superhero status. Now, how we go forward, it takes time. There's steps to that. But if you're alive today, please know you're amazing because somebody else didn't make it. The privilege of your being here, no matter what situation, it is a privilege because someone else went through far less than you have and they are not here. And people minimize this way too much and they don't need to.
0: When Once you start choosing your story, first off, like going through this kind of scenarios is difficult itself. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to talk about your story? Is, Is it just a gift Hope to other people. I don't think your version of it is just a hope or awareness the way you are talking. So, why do you choose to talk about your story?
1: I'm going to tear up with this. I'm tearing up now, so forgive me. Um, Sorry. No, no, no apologies necessary when I was gonna write the first book, when I was coming up with writing the first book over the years, I had journaled everything. So I, I knew, oh, we can just put that together. I don't need to write that, you know? And I felt the Holy Spirit talk to me what he wanted me to write. And I just said, I had written all these things before. And he's like, no, that's not your first book. It's this. And I'm like, what? So I'm okay, whatever. And I'm writing it down, whatever. And then I get to a certain point, I'm like, I, I can't, I don't wanna talk about this. I don't wanna do anything. And it came to my mind, okay. So when you were a little girl in that library reading those survivor stories, those stories that saved your life night after night, situation after situation, you're telling me that little girl who was you was so important enough to read those stories to save your life. But you're telling me that that little girl that exists out there somewhere else or that woman who your story would save their life. They're not important enough. You were, but they're not. And when it was put to me that way, my heart just broke in that moment. My breath was just taken away from me. It was like, you pulled the carpet under my feet because I didn't realize how selfish that was. I didn't make the connection that if it wasn't for someone else's courage to tell their story, you may not be here. But you're telling me that no one else is important enough as you were for you to share that story, to offer a glimmer of hope and possibly save someone else's life. They're not important enough, but you were. I didn't look at it that way. Because again, that's where doubt comes in that, oh, who's going to care about my story? It's already people out there talking that has stories worse than mine. And, you know, nobody's going to care about little old me, but no. I had to realize that each person born doesn't matter if you're talking about trauma, but you have a signed audience. We can get a celebrity to talk to them, but you know what? It's something within you and your voice and what you've been through and what you're saying and what you know from what you've been through. That's why they're your audience because they need to hear from you. They'll be transformed differently by your sharing than if a celebrity shares. Those people that you're assigned, that are assigned to you, you resonate with, they resonate with you so much because your story, you know, that's me, that's me. They look at you like, that's me. They need to hear your survivor. They need to hear the steps that you had. They need to even hear some of the experiences. To not do that. I want to give a disclaimer that um, there is a time that you're not ready. I understand that. You know, I work with different authors and I let them write the book. And I go, okay, congratulations, it's done, but we're gonna pause before we publish it. And they'll go, "What? what? I mean, it's done, why are we pausing? I say, because you know what? First of all, writing is cathartic, but sometimes you're writing it first for you. You're not ready to share it. And they're like, what do you mean? You know, we got the book cover, we got it. we got the trailer. You know why? Because I have identified through this time that you're still in pain and the level of pain If we allowed you to go share this book now, which means you had to continually share your story, we would be re-traumatizing you. So we're not going to allow you or we're not going to advise you because there's a legal thing. I can't stop you completely. But in love, what I'll say is this is too traumatic for you. And I advise you to seek some help first to heal yourself. And address some of these pain points that sharing this story, even in written form, has been, you know, like ripping a band off that wound. If you keep ripping the band-aid off, it can't heal. Sometimes you need to share the story and write the story to heal, you know, for the catharsis that writing has. But before you go publicly share the story, you can be at a point where you realize, oh my God, this traumatizes me. Get help first and, and go through that first before you make the the position to share the story. So I understand there are times where you are too wounded or bringing this up again has brought up certain things that you thought were hidden, you thought I dealt with and you haven't, and you need to pause and go get help. Nothing's wrong with that. Sometimes just the fact that you're sharing the story, you need to make sure that you have some clinical help, some professional help with you to help deal with some of the emotions. Maybe it's not traumatizing you, but it is weighty and you need someone to continually help you as you share the process. Got that. But at some point after we've done all that, it's time. It's time for you to pay it forward and go share the story so that when they see Alicia Brown, the joy guru, and you're seeing where I'm all happy and joyful, you know how I got there. It's not that I didn't have problems. It's not that my life is perfect because that's the veil we do. We, we compare our middle to someone else's ending we compare our beginning to someone else's middle you haven't even seen everything they've gone through to get to that point and the sad part is a lot of times they don't tell you so that we have this cloak of perfection everything's wonderful tell them about what you've been through so they can get some inspiration to keep going and not feeling like it's something wrong with them and then on the other side of that which is why i'm really happy i'm here today one thing that a lot of ceos and entrepreneurs don't talk about especially highly successful ones, there's a great deal of depression that comes with entrepreneurship. Great deal of depression. There's a lot of times you're alone and people feel like, you know, the higher I get, the more visibility, the more money I get, that's going to solve everything. It doesn't. You know, if I get more staff people, eh, that just gives me more stressors. So some of us that have been through certain environments, certain abusive situations, certain traumas, that extra pressure can be too much. That's why you see a lot of celebrities. You see millionaires, billionaires. They're fine one day, and you read a paper or read the story, they're dead. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, as we start exposing some of the things in their lives, they were dealing with that trauma. Certain things they never dealt with. Maybe they didn't seek help. Someone diagnosed them with depression. Okay, they're on medicine, but they didn't get the professional help that they needed continually as you're adding life, as you're adding other experiences they're going through, They didn't have the help they needed professionally to navigate those different levels in that part of their world. And now we're back to square one or we're worse and things are out of control. So people are using drugs, sometimes prescriptions, sometimes illegal, sometimes a combination. People are drinking too much and it's socially accepted. You know, you're a business meeting, you're in a mixer. Of course you have a couple of drinks. Sometimes you don't need to be drinking or you're drinking too much and you're an alcoholic. People are just ignoring a lot of things and it's all going back to what has not been dealt with from that abusive past. And I tell people with abuse, the symptoms of abuse that are not dealt with, that pain you keep choking down, it is like a cancer that just eats you up from the inside. It destroys every good thing physically, mentally, emotionally until there's nothing but a shell left. And that shell may be beautiful. You can adorn it with all of the beautiful fashions and jewelry and hair and makeup, but it's still a shell. It's empty. It's shallow. There's no substance in because it's just, it's depleted. And either you die physically or you're the walking dead. Either way, you're not thriving. And why? There was help. You could get help. It didn't matter what anyone said. It didn't matter what other people's opinion was. What mattered was you and your happiness, and your joy, and the ability. My thing is I've already been victimized. Why should I be re-victimized? I didn't ask for that. So why should I live the rest of my life suffering from what someone else did? If there is help for restoration, if there is help for me to move forward, if there is help for me to have some form of happiness and work my way to joy, I, I deserve that. That's what I should have. I've already survived so much. I should have that. And I deserve to have that. And once you realize what you deserve to have, that is what you'll go after and pursue. If you don't think you deserve to have it, it could be right there for you and you won't take it because you don't think you deserve it. And that's why I see so many of us that have been through abuse. That's what we accept. That's what we think is okay because we've been. it's been ingrained in us for a long time that we're worthless and we don't deserve anything. That's why this happened to us, but it's not true.
0: While you're talking, you mentioned many times that you are Jai Guru. What does that actually mean? Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smita Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.